Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about presidential politics and how things could play out in Indiana this year in 2012. Uh, Indiana was a swing state in 2008 uh, in the presidential election. Political analysts, though, this year are suggesting that it's likely to um, go back to its historical trend of voting Republican. So we're going to be talking with three guests about that and about what some of the other races might bring. Trent Deckard is with us. Trent is co-director of the Indiana Election Division. Veda Long is here. She's the vice chair of the Vigo County Republican Party and director of the Vigo County Voter Registration Office. And Margie Hershey is here. She's uh, IU professor of political science and as we like to say, the noon edition political correspondent. That's right. So Margie, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being here with us. Uh, Trent has worked with Baron Hill. He's mm-hmm. a, a Democrat. And yes. Veda, as we said, is a Republican. So we're going to get uh, both major party points of view today. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also... Uh, Find us online, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition to join a live chat, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thanks, everybody, for being here. It's an interesting year. Uh, the presidential election years always are interesting, and you know, we could, uh, I'm sure you could each talk about this election year for the entire show, but I want you to, to start out with a short summary of sort of how you see Indiana this year. I mean, 2008, it did go for Obama. This year, people are saying... It's probably going to return to, to be a Republican state. Uh, Trent, mm-hmm. from the Democratic standpoint, why, did, why is that? Well, I, I think Indiana does have a, a long-standing running tradition of, of the way things were outside of 2008. Certainly, when you look at 2008, 2008 was the most unique experience, both primary and in the fall. I think that we've ever seen. I can remember telling folks back then, take a picture because you may never see it like this again. <laughs> However, that having been said, Indiana is a very unique place in that Hoosiers are not quite like anyone else. And so um, any number of factors could come in in the next few weeks or days. And we all know campaigns are in an age where um, a post on Twitter can can really impact uh, a, a race. And so you just never know. Uh, we also see that people – from an election administrator perspective, are really getting engaged at this point. Uh, I told our staff at uh, my office that it looked like this week people woke up and realized there's an election going on this year, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Veda, from your standpoint? I agree. I worked at the voter registration office up till about a month ago. Things were really slow. Mm-hmm. And just the last three or four weeks, people really gotten interested. It's like they woke up and said, yeah, hey, there's an election coming. Mm-hmm. 2008 was a unique year. I know Vigo County had the biggest turnout that year for the presidential election than we've had in years because the young kids were inspired. You know, they were fired up. And we're not seeing that out there this year. And mm-hmm. it, it's sad. But, you know, it's going to be a, a good election. And mm-hmm. uh, people are getting excited. Mm-hmm. So, Margie, from your standpoint? I think one of the things we're especially seeing now is the impact of the rules on the outcome, and particularly the Electoral College, and the impact of that on us is that we basically don't matter to the presidential election. Mm -hmm. About seven states matter now, and that's all that matters, because their electoral votes are the only ones that are in doubt. And the biggies here, of course, are Ohio and Florida, Mm -hmm. and um, beyond that, uh, Colorado, New Hampshire, Iowa. It's interesting. We so often 
regret the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire are the first primaries and that they're such unusual states. But in fact, uh, for the last few elections, they have been among the states that have decided the vote for president because of their electoral college votes and the fact that they've been close between Republicans and Democrats. On the other hand, we have an awful lot going on with respect to the Indiana Senate race and with respect to the control of the state house. Mm -hmm. Um, The polarization that we've seen um, in American politics in the last 20 years and the fact that the Republicans and Democrats are so closely uh, matched in terms of numbers means that when one party gets control of a state legislature, uh, it's got a long to-do list that it wants to get accomplished ASAP so that it can take advantage of its majority before it gets voted out again. Right. It's You mentioned the rules. Um, how are you seeing the new voter ID laws? How do you predict that's going to oh, That face was interesting. <laughs> For those of you who couldn't see that that, that, that caused Margie to make quite a little face here. How do you see that uh, having an effect on the election? I think that if the Electoral College vote is close, we are going to be treated to, and I use that word advisedly, months' worth of litigation of states' voter ID laws because they are going to make a huge difference in terms of um, states that are closely divided now and whose voter ID laws have just been implemented, such as Pennsylvania's, depending on what kind of law is implemented there. It's unclear right now. Um, they will make a difference with respect to the turnout of Democrats relative to Republicans. And so depending on who wins the presidency, there will be a whole lot of action in the courts about those laws. So if you thought the hanging chad were bad, buckle your seatbelts, there's more coming. More where that came from, huh? We, we're not producing all these attorneys for nothing. You know, they, <laughs> the election law has um, become a pretty popular specialty as a result. Um, let me ask you another question. Um, we talked about the in, in Indiana, there's a very real possibility with this election that the Republicans could be in charge of every level at the state. Um, so do you think that the voters see that as a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I, and I wonder if, if you see it as being something that strictly falls on par- party lines. If you're a Republican, you think, yay, raw, that's a great thing. Or do you think that innately, I mean, Trent, you made the point that Hoosiers are unique. Do you think that there's any traction with the thought that, you know, maybe maybe it's not a good idea uh, for, for one party to be in charge of the whole shebang? I, I would answer that, you know, I think Pardon me. Voters are very uh, they. If there's something they don't like about an elected official or something they don't like about something going on, they will wake up and they will tell folks. Um, I'm not sure that when they go to the ballot box, they think much about total control of one party or the other. But I think that if they look at performance and what has happened, they do respond very well to that. And so the question becomes for a party, in in this case in Indiana, we're talking about the Republicans. If the Republicans are in complete dominance at the state level or in a a county party, if governing is not done well, people do look at that and they do respond to that. So a party that has been successful at the ballot box and has all those positions has to be extremely careful that they don't overplay what they call a mandate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are times where I watch – uh, we advise – for my position, we advise the General Assembly as they look at election law. And I watch how uh, they look at things. And I always think about, uh, you know, it, how will this play back home for the folks that uh, the members of the General Assembly represent? And does that come into a factor? I think at a point, those things do resonate very much with voters back home. The Indiana voters are very smart. They pay attention to local politics and state politics. Vigo County is a great example. They vote – uh, Republican in state elections, but they vote Democrat in the local election. So they pay attention to their candidates and they vote for who they think is the best one for the job. Mm-hmm. All right, we have a phone call. Let's go to Stan on the phone. Stan? Hi, uh, thanks. Uh, first, I want to say that I really appreciate the fact checking that the news media is doing and uh, certainly the HT. And on that uh, score, uh, I, I, I read the. <laughs> the Todd discussion 
And I have a hell of a time understanding how he can sign the Norquist Pledge and then say he's going to agonize over the Constitution when, when deciding on budget issues. I, it never occurred to me that that would be something that would come into play. Could, could your participants discuss that? And you're talking about uh, Todd Young's discussion that we had with him earlier this yes. week, right? <laughs> yes, please. Okay. Anybody want to tackle that? Well, I... I guess I can start off, sure. and, and just for full disclosure, I did work for uh, the gentleman that Mr. Young uh, defeated in the last election. But, you know, I, I've watched Todd Young's rhetoric over the years, and I was I think it was in Hotline the other day or somewhere where he was answering a question in the HT about uh, his stance on, on the tax pledge with Mr. Norquist. And I, I did notice that uh, he left himself a way out, uh, saying that if at some point his constituents need him to raise taxes or something comes up, he would go that route. But the pledge was very important. I've always thought that candidates that make those pledges have to think, ultimately, will that pledge ever fall back to an issue back home? Because ultimately, Grover Norquist doesn't vote for Todd Young. And so that's a question I think he realized. I think in today's polarization cycle, I think he's seeing that he has to be careful with issues and be open to more than pledges that are uh, being sent from Washington. But certainly, uh, I, I did read that and notice that his rhetoric has changed in the last two years over such things. Mm-hmm. Let me just point out that Grover Norquist is the head of a group in Washington that is a very conservative group, and he has been promoting a pledge for the last 20 years in which um, the overwhelming majority of Republican representatives in Washington have signed that says no tax increase, none, under any circumstances whatsoever. I mean, it couldn't be clearer, no tax increase. And sometimes he has... Um, interpreted the lack of tax cuts to mean tax increase. But he has a lot of power uh, in Washington among Republican representatives who are very fearful of of, um, of getting on his wrong side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Data, any response? Nope. All right. No, okay. Todd's not in my district, so I, and I didn't hear the, the, the discussion right. last time. So. All right. No problem. Okay. Stan, thanks a lot for the call. Our numbers are 855-0811-877-285-9348 and wfiu.org slash noon edition. Let's talk about polling a little bit. Um, We're starting – people are starting to run some polls. We're starting to see uh, some results from those. How are those – played as far as, you know, let's say it comes back that, that you're ahead uh, or you're gaining on your opponent. Do you want to let the other guys know or, or you know, is it is it wisest to keep that information private? How, how are the polls used most effectively? Margie? There are two types of polls. There are campaign and party polls on the one hand, um, and there are um, more impartial research-oriented polls on the other. Um, They all have constituencies. The party and candidate polls are specifically for the party and the candidate. So they want as, as, uh, as accurate information as they can, although the most accurate information is not always conveyed to the candidate because you want to make sure that the candidate continues to fight even if he or she is running into trouble. But the <laughs> candidate or the party will not release information about those polls unless they think it will help them. Um, folks like Nate Silver, um, Gallup, and various others have different clients. They have people who are advertisers who advertise on their polls and people who are a variety of research outfits that pay them. They have to be accurate, and they also have to be perfectly public about their mm-hmm. information. And uh, many of them will release a lot of their data to other researchers. But um, I uh, if if I were advising people, I would say um, pay attention to Gallup, pay attention to Nate Silver. Um, you will hear from the campaigns, understandably, just as you and I would probably do if we were the candidates, only if they think the poll is going to help them, okay. whether it's because they're gaining and they're behind or because they are very much ahead and they're trying to um, make sure that the other side does not get an increase in contributions or volunteerism. So... Oh, go ahead. Uh, a poll can be taken, you know, 
turned around any way you want it to be. You know, it depends on the poll taker and the questions that's asked. You know, they can ask a certain question, and it can mean two different ways, and it's how the, mm-hmm. the person interprets that question to come. And I don't put a lot of um, credibility in polls because, you know, come Election Day, those people that you polled earlier, they might have told you what you wanted to hear mm-hmm. when they get that polling booth, though, they're going to vote how they want to vote. You know, though, Veda, it's really a challenge because um, people like Gallup, they, their bottom line depends on their being as accurate as possible. The big failing that they have is that they have to figure out which of the people they're talking to are actually going to go to the polls right. on Election Day. Mm-hmm. Um, an awful lot of people will tell poll takers that they are going to vote because that's a socially acceptable thing to do. Um, and will not go to the polls. So the the real challenge for Gallup and everybody else who does polling is to use enough questions to screen their sample to see whether or not they're lying when they say they're going to go vote on Election Day. And uh, Gallup uses a set of nine different questions just to screen whether or not people are actually going to vote. You know, then there's only one question as to who you're going to vote for. But first, you've got to figure out if they're the people who are actually showing up. Now, Trent, when you were working uh, during the last election cycle for Barron Hill running against Todd Young, um, this might be you know inside information you don't want to share, but I mean, how how closely was the the polling that you were doing and that you were tracking? How closely did that turn out to be to the actual election? Well, I saw a limited amount of that, but yeah. just enough to kind of give me an idea of what we needed to be doing uh, with him. And the polling at that time showed the race to be extremely neck and neck. Uh, election day was not extremely neck and neck at all. And so uh, to kind of uh, go off some of the comments, uh, I, I tend to be a bit of a poll skeptic, particularly if you have a wave or you have a lot of political activity that is happening or new voters coming in. And we, we've seen in both the 2008 and 2010 cycle a whole different group of voters being introduced into the system. I think polling can give you a very good genuine, general idea where you need to head or what's going on or what people think. But I think that any good candidate worth their salt should take that with a grain of salt and supplement with more voters. Uh, <laughs> a little more work, a little more something else. Uh, but if, for instance, I saw a poll a few years back that asked the question in, in Indiana, how, how much are you concerned about moral values? And I think the response was 12% of Hoosiers were concerned with moral values. Now, when you broke out what moral values meant to voters, they were all over the place, 90% towards traditional marriage and, 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 and things like that. And so it's all in the wording. It's all in mm-hmm. if they're saying the candidate's name right, the pollster, and, and, all, and all those things. So grain of salt. As something I've noticed just recently, much to my delight, I might add, uh, is they seem to, the discussion seems to be backing away from social issues, and we do seem to be talking more about the economy. This is just one woman's observation. Marjorie, have you noticed the same thing, and would you comment on that, please? Absolutely. The economy will always dominate an election uh, unless things are relatively peaceful, in which case there's room for foreign policy, for something else to come in. Um, let me mention with respect to the question about congressional polls, presidential polls are a heck of a lot more predictive than congressional mm-hmm. polls are because we're doing them every day and we've got tons of different polling firms that are each out there with their numbers. So you take an average of them and you get a pretty good predictor. Congressional and Senate polls are taken more rarely. Um, you, For a congressional race, you might get two of them during the entire campaign. If you get one in the middle of October, you've got three weeks for people to, to change their minds mm-hmm. and to uh, develop an interest that they hadn't before. So I would take the presidential polls much more seriously. There's a challenge in terms of understanding uh, any poll results now because increasingly people are moving away from landlines and mm-hmm. not just a random sample of people, but younger people. So we are systematically underrepresenting the number of young people in polls, and that means that the young people who are picked up on landlines, their views are going to artificially be inflated in the poll results. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of pollsters are starting to work with that, but it's not easy to figure out exactly how to work with that. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Did you want to comment on the social issues versus the economy anymore, or that was... I think Trent's comment was exactly right. Um, The term social issues means lots of different things to different people. Um, You know, to somebody who's a highly conservative Republican, it probably means abortion and same-sex marriage. To uh, somebody who is a liberal evangelical, it may mean the Sermon on the Mount, um, you know, caring for poor people. Um, So we have to be really careful in polls to ask the kinds of questions that use the terms people normally use, not Mm -hmm. ones that social scientists uh, use that that mean virtually nothing to most people. Well, the economy hits everybody, where social mm. issues hit a few people. So the economy is something that, you know, candidates really focus on mm-hmm. to try to reach all voters instead of just those chosen few voters that's out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Again, our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We want to talk – I want to talk about the Senate race a little bit in Indiana, and I want to go to VEDA first because I think, you know, in, in Indiana it seems to me that Lee Hamilton and Richard Luger were two of the people that were considered statesmen, almost untouchable. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden in the Republican Party, we have uh, you know Richard Murdoch who challenges Richard Luger and beats him in the primary. How's that sort of changed uh, you know the, the view for the Republican Party of this Senate race? I don't think it's changed any of the views. Um, it was a tight race, I thought, between Luger and Murdoch. Mm-hmm. They both worked very hard. Um, I think Luger, though, from what I heard, just they say he wasn't in touch with the people anymore, and, and Richard was out there working. I just was with Richard Murdoch last night at our uh, Reagan dinner in Vigo County, and uh, he has some great ideas. I think he'll make a great senator, and uh, it's going to be a close race, but uh, I think Richard's going to get out there and really work hard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the, the Senate race is right there. It's pretty much neck and neck, isn't it, based on whatever polling that we've yeah. seen? Now yeah. we've already yeah. said that you've... Yeah, yeah. certainly competitive. Uh-huh. Uh, everything that we see is, is certainly competitive, and both uh, candidates are engaging, uh, Joe Donnelly and Richard Murdoch, engaging the system very hard. They're working very hard. They have field operations, and we see evidence of that all over the state. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting for the state to have a race that's not just nominal, but engaged. Mm-hmm. But the historic significance, I think you probably covered this on the show many times, of Richard Luger not being involved in that fall ballot is amazing. If you would have told me when I started off working in politics and public service in uh, the early 2000s that one day we'd have a time where Richard Luger would not be the nominee of his party, not of his own choosing, I, I would have told you I was going to eat my shoes first. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it does it's go back. we didn't do that. I know. <laughs> it goes back to saying, and this is when I was in campaign management, I always said about election time that anything can happen on Halloween. And <laughs> That's the, right. And it, and it can and does. And, and this time, you know, we saw earlier in uh, last decade, I believe it was, we saw Bob Garton get defeated in his primary. Mm-hmm. We saw Larry Borst. And now we have uh, mm-hmm. and Richard Luger. Mm-hmm. We had a caller uh, who called in and said that Gallup called his cell phone recently. So they mm-hmm. are, the mm-hmm. pollsters are getting around now to including some cell phone numbers in their polling. And I'd heard that from some other uh, polling uh, people Gallup too. is. Uh, the wealthier survey firms can do that. It costs more to get lists for cell phones, mm-hmm. um, but lots of other pollsters are not yet doing that. And we're running a survey online. Um, are you planning to vote in this year's election? And so far, 100% of the people responding are saying yes, they're going to vote. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> they're listening to our yeah, show. Yeah, I don't know how representative that is. But hey, there, for what it's yeah. worth, if you want to go online to uh, indianapublicmedia.org and join in, we'd love to hear from you. You can uh, give us your questions, comments, or uh, vote in the in, in the, get practice voting. Let's say that. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna take a short break right now. You're listening to a noon edition, and we're having a discussion about politics in Indiana. Trent Deckard is with us. He's co-director of the Indiana Election Division. Veda Long, the vice chair of the Vigo County Republican Party and director of the Vigo County Voter Registration Office, and Marjorie Hershey, an IU professor of political science, and uh, one of our uh, longtime favorite guests to talk about politics. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. 
Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael and our three guests in the studio today, Trent Deckard, who's the co-director of the Indiana Election Division, Veda Long, vice chair of the Vigo County Republican Party and director of the Vigo County Voter Registration Office, and Margie Hershey, an IU professor of political science. We're talking about uh, politics in Indiana. So if you want to call us, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington. 877-285-9348 from Vigo County or any place else outside of the Bloomington area. Uh, or you can join us online, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Um, Margie, I wanted you to, to sort of address the Murdoch-Donnelly race, too, and sort of give, a, give me a, a, a thumbnail of what, you know, how surprised you were at that and what you think about, about that turn of events. I think what's most interesting is that although the polls that we have clearly show that the race is neck and neck with at times Donnelly a little bit ahead, that most of the national commentators are not putting Indiana on their list of uh, states that could go either way for the Senate. And my suspicion is that they've just got their thumb on the scale that this is Indiana and they figure Mm -hmm. that we are Republican here and so this couldn't possibly be accurate. But um, I'm not sure that they're correct in putting that thumb on the scale. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to follow up with you and with Veda. I mean, how do you think Luger Republicans are going to react in this election? Are they going to just say, okay, our our Luger lost, so we're going to go with – with Richard Murdoch, or are they going to sort of hold a grudge and say, well, stay away or vote for Donald? I think conservatives will probably stick with Murdoch because, you know, they're going to look at that record and say he's more conservative. So we're just going to even though Luger lost, we're going to go ahead and go with our conservative values. Uh-huh. We find overwhelmingly that as the election draws closer, people come back home as far as their partisanship is concerned, and that becomes more and more true. I, I would imagine that most of the people who are listening out there would say, oh, I'm, I'm, I vote for the person, not for the party. And yet we know that 90% of voters are, it turns out that their party is the person whom they support. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, and if you get in the voting booth and you are faced with two names, neither of which are ringing a bell at that moment, I think that it is human nature to go with the party that you, with whom you usually affiliate. Yeah, and as the tension level rises, as the numbers of ads come in that are profoundly negative, people get mad. And uh, that mm-hmm. brings them closer to their pre-existing partisanship. And we're sheltered from a lot of that in Indiana because we're not a hot spot this year for the presidential race. And so mm-hmm. I think we are spared, um, although it, I've noticed uh, recently it is heating up. Some of the more interesting ads, I think, are coming from the uh, folks involved in the race for governor this year. Um, <laughs> John Gregg has yeah. taken kind of a different approach in his ads. Um, his opponent has taken a more traditional approach. How do you think – what's your sense on how that's playing out in the public? Well, it's definitely, a, it, it's definitely a campaign and a battle of different types of traditions, it seems mm-hmm. like. Uh, John Gregg is, is featuring in his ads where he's from, what he's grown up with. And if you know John Gregg – uh, that's John Gregg. What you see in that commercial is exactly mm-hmm. what you get. He's a guy that goes to San- back to Sanborn uh, every mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. And uh, for people in southern Indiana, that's something that they have seen and that they have known. And I think given uh, the way the race started and uh, where his name ID was, I think that this is something he's done to play catch up on a large national figure that he's 
competing against. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, time will tell exactly how that plays out. But these are very interesting ads that he's running. And when you're in a sea of ads that are cookie cutter, uh, they stand out a little bit. It, it seems to me, and I might be wrong about this, but the Mike Pence ads I remember are mostly sort of family oriented mm-hmm. ads. They're not mm-hmm. really negative attack ads either. No, he's correct? trying to bring out his uh, life, you know, and his hometown and his family. And I must say, though, it is refreshing not to see the mudslinging in this campaign. <laughs> yeah. you know, the commercials are great. Um, yeah. Mike Pence is bringing forth, you know, family values, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and doing a great job at it. Although it's very odd to see, you know, somebody from Mars landing in Indiana might think that the governor candidates are Mike Pence's wife and, and John Gregg's mother. Yeah. You know? Or hobo. Yeah. Hobo. Yeah. Clip and curl. Right. But, you know, curiously enough, the negative ads do drive voter sentiment. I mm-hmm. mean, we may hate them. But mm. they influence us, and uh, they often actually are more powerful in terms of providing information. With all due respect to the beauty parlor that John Gregg's mother visits and the ice skating rink that Mrs. Pence spends time at, we actually, I think, learn more from the negative ads oh, than we have about oh, But can Margie. we believe them? That's well. the thing. I mean, I think it's – I feel like – some of the negative ones are so out, so ooh, mean-spirited and horrible. Yeah, it's yeah. like, gosh. Mm-hmm. Well, they are, are but, uh, you know, that's where, thank heaven, uh, media come in, newspapers and fact-checkers. And uh, the really frightening thing for me is the proportion of people who have come to believe this is uh, called in the in the business the hostile media hypothesis that you can uh, survey a group of people in a community who all read the same newspaper and a substantial proportion will think it's biased toward the Republicans and another substantial <laughs> proportion will think it's biased toward the Democrats. I've never heard that before of you, Bob. <laughs> you know, it's, sort of, it's sort of like South and North sports oh coverage. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Kind of yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, but, you know, people will people will tell you they don't like negative ads and that they don't choose a party and what have you. But they will, at the same time, they tell you they don't like negative ads. They'll repeat back the lines they heard from the negative ads. They'll say, you know, I don't like those ads. They're horrible. But it does kind of make you wonder why he voted for blank, blank, blank. <laughs> and, and so you see yeah. it happening. And you can tell in the messaging that people will tell you that it has an effect. Yeah, it's more entertaining. It's, uh, you know, we, we are drawn toward conflict as a species. And, uh, well, John Gregg was in our office not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, and, and we had a conversation. And, and he talked a lot. He talked about his advertising. But he also talked, you know, I mentioned the Luger Republicans before. They're, his campaign is trying to target that group of people. And I think it's, you know, if you look at the Murdoch uh, polling numbers, the Murdoch and Donnelly polling numbers, that's pretty close. But the, the only poll I saw was about a month ago on this on the governor's race, and John Gregg was 18 to 20 points down. Um, does he, Margie, does he have any, any shot at all? Does he have any shot at getting those Luger Republicans to come his way? And no. <laughs> you want you want honesty. Yes, we want honesty. <laughs> uh, you know, it's the sort of campaign that you run when uh, you don't have an awful lot of money relative to your opponent, and you're you're trying a hail mary, and um, that's his hail mary. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna go to the phones here in just a second. I think uh, we have John first. John. Yes, I. Uh want to change the focus just briefly for a moment. I was wondering if it was time to get rid of the Electoral College. There's a lot of people whose votes really just don't count anymore. Okay. Time to get rid of the Electoral College. That's a big one. <laughs> you know, it's there, there are folks that that uh, and that conversation comes up mm-hmm. all the time, and, and and folks that certainly advocate for that, and and certainly when the popular vote exceeds what happens or is different than what happens uh, with the electoral college, there are folks that um, make that advocacy. Um, you know, some would argue that the electoral college, the campaigns would argue that it allows them to focus on areas and not have to run nationwide all the time. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, I think it was Richard Nixon, he made the pledge to visit every state and literally had to do it and you know, found himself in Alaska at a, at a tough time in his campaign. The night before the election. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the, certainly the, there's competing interests on that, and it's easy to see how people get frustrated. I think you have to get into an intense study on why it's set up the way it is. 
And uh, boy, that would be a big change. But it certainly would make sense to a lot of folks. The founders had a reason for it. Um, They saw us as a confederation of states coming together, and they knew that politically they would never create a country if they didn't maintain that states' rights um, appeal. And um, in practice, with all due respect to the questioner, it's not going to happen because um, election law reform is very, very difficult to achieve because we have uh, presidential elections only once every four years. As soon as one's over, we we, um, spout off about it for a little while, but then the economy comes back and immigration comes back and foreign policy comes back and we've just got other things to do. It's tough to amend the Constitution. It's a very lengthy process and it requires a lot of resources and we're just not going to devote them. Aren't there a couple of states where the, it's not a winner-take-all? for these? Yeah, there yeah. are two, Nebraska uh-huh. and Maine, and there has been an effort to try to get uh, get this passed in various other states. And, of course, each party wants to get that passed in the states where the other party is <laughs> dominant. Um, <laughs> there was an effort in Colorado, for example, to so that Republicans would be able to get a few electoral votes out of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. But it's, it's not going anywhere. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, John. Uh, we're going to go to Byron next. Byron? Hi. I had a question, I guess, primarily for... Professor Hershey, but I'm following up on something that Mary Catherine said in passing. What can we believe? On both the Murdoch side and the Donnelly side, we see opposing commercials. He's for X, he hates X, he's for Y, he hates Y. How in the world can we figure out who's telling the truth? I think there are a number of ways that you can. One is that most of these commercials have a little asterisk somewhere that cites a source. And if you follow that asterisk and see what the source is, and if it's a partisan source, if I were you, I wouldn't pay much attention to it. I think that the fact checkers, as much as they've received some criticism from both sides in recent months, are our best friends with respect to these things. Um, The biggest challenge is just simply in trying to make sure that a piece of information is not taken out of context. And that's the sort of thing that requires research that you and I, Byron, are not going to do. But the folks who are paid to do that, who are fact checkers, are going to do it. And, uh, you know, presuming that they don't have an axe to grind, which I don't think most of them do, um, that's where I'd spend my time. PolitiFact.com is a good example. Thank you. All right, Byron. Uh, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. Also, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition to join a live chat. And uh, here's a comment that came in from Lee. It says, the negative ads now come from groups who support candidates rather than rather the candidates them rather I think they mean rather than the candidates themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't think the public has served well by negative or positive ads. Give me a break. It's an ad, not a PSA, public service announcement. The media could empower the voters if they would compile side by side voting records. No analysis, simply the bill, a summary of the bill, a yay or nay vote. What's your reaction to that, Marjorie? You know, Lee Hamilton always uh, quoted Daniel Patrick Moynihan as saying, you're welcome to your own opinions, but you're not welcome to your own facts. The problem is you are welcome to your own facts because there are lots of facts out there. Um, We could say, for example, that um, Mitt Romney favors uh, one particular bill that is current, Or it's also a fact that he may not have favored it in the past. Both of those are facts. It's very difficult to be able as a media person to say, I can state definitively um, that that this fact is more relevant than that fact. And that's always going to be a question that partisans are going to have contention with. Um, so they're under attack from all sides, and I can understand why. I would think as a politician it would be so very frustrating to have somebody just take a snapshot of a vote oh, sure. when you don't know uh, as a you know you don't know what went into the choice to make that vote. There is so much going on behind the scenes, and mm-hmm. um, that's why they call it politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it you know it can be misleading to even judge someone strictly by their voting record. It's very frustrating. It's also the case that we have uh, an entire profession of people who work to frame issues, who try to figure out 
very catchy terms that people will remember. Um, is health care reform a government takeover of health care? No, not by any stretch of the imagination, but that's a very clever phrase, and it's one that will lead you to a certain conclusion. And people on the other side will do their best, although have done so with much less success, to frame their own point of view. Um, So it's not just even being able to take information like voting on bills, which I think most people probably aren't going to pay much attention to, but uh, these phrases that are repeated over and over again, and they're not repeated by accident, they're repeated because that's how you get a frame accepted, Mm -hmm. is to keep repeating it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and we only have so much room in our brains to remember all this stuff, so when it's something, you know, that's something for us to hold on to and refer back to. If politics were all that important to people, they would have uh, as much information as all those folks who have all the statistics about IU basketball that go back to 1943, (laughs) you know. It's not. We've all got other things to think about, and Mm -hmm. that's why there's so much room for persuasion. Yeah. And listeners, one thing I I would point out, and this comes from times uh, having worked for a member of Congress, listeners have to be very, very careful at things that they receive from outside groups, things that come in their mail. There's groups that will tell them every day Social Security is going to be gone tomorrow, Medicare will be gone tomorrow, that government's coming for them, all sorts of things. And everything should be taken with a grain of salt. Every group should be looked at for what why are they communicating? And you have that on right and left. And mm-hmm. it's the consumer out there today is being flooded with more information than ever. They have to be very discerning with it or to overwhelm. But that's okay, right? I mean, I think that most of us would grant that there are differences of opinion in society and that that's okay. James Madison would have told us, the, the earlier one rather than our, our present wonderful one, <laughs> that uh, it, in any group of humans, there are going to be different interests. That's not, uh, n- not surprising and it's not anything shocking. And it's not shocking that people will naturally try to put their own interests in the most favorable possible light. But we're accustomed to that when we take a look at what kind of iPhone should I get or, uh, you know, we can sort out advertising. It's not so shocking. Mm -hmm. Politics is a noble profession. People put up with a heck of a lot to Mm -hmm. stay in it. And they're just doing what any of us would if we were in that situation of just putting ourselves forward as best we can. Mm-hmm. That's why it's important to follow your candidate, you know, and find out exactly what your candidate stands for instead of just going and voting. You know, you got to learn mm-hmm. what they, they want instead of listening to the outside groups. You have to listen mm-hmm. to them and wait. You know, are they telling me the truth or are they not? Right. Okay, again, we have 10 minutes to go in the program. It's a discussion about politics today. If you want to join the talk, call us at 855-0811 or... 877-285-9348, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Talking about fact-checkers, and I've written a couple of columns about, about fact-checking and fact-checkers. You know, they're not infallible, of course, but most of, the, most of the people that we're calling fact-checkers now really are journalists, professional journalists who work for the Washington Post or who work for the Tampa Bay Times or some other CNN or some other group, NPR. I mean, all, a lot of major news operations are doing fact-checking. And, of course, you know, now they're under scrutiny. It, 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 sometimes it just kind of boggles my mind. It's like we can't you – know, they're, they're, that's a fact-check. We can't trust a fact-checker. He's got a point of view. Well, yeah. I mean, everybody yeah. has a point of view, yes. But, but I think what the fact-checkers are doing, and I guess I want you know, all of your opinions on, on it, is they're trying to take a comment or a, a campaign comment, something, one of these things that we've talked about that may be something taken out of context, and try to give it context. Mm-hmm. Here's what this means. It's not, you know, it's, it, 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 somebody can read a fact checker's perspective on something and still say, well, I don't agree with the fact checker, but mm-hmm. it's at least adding context. It's just like the polls. You know, you can take any statement, any comment, and you can make it turn into anything you want it to turn into. And that's why I said before, you have to listen to your candidates. You know, the the press is going to read how they want to read it. So it's up to you to interpret that statement as, you know, how you believe that meant. Mm -hmm. And not listen so much to your medias and stuff, but what you hear and what you read is what you need to believe. Mm -hmm. I think one of the big... Uh, difficulties we have to face is that we are such a large and complicated society. Probably when we were smaller, 
people didn't have the level of suspicion that seems to be so innate about both journalism and politics right mm. now. Um, most reporters don't have an axe to grind, honestly speaking. The, what reporters are biased toward is getting an audience, um, and that audience is going to be gotten not by necessarily a partisan slant, as it is by covering things that are interesting to people, you know, things that have pretty pictures, things that are um, full of conflict, things that are dramatic. That's the bias in news coverage, if there is one, and it's a bias that is because we are biased toward those things. Uh, newspapers want to sell papers. Um, that they, I don't think they set out to elect Richard Murdoch or to elect Joe Donnelly. They want to survive economically. <laughs> uh, but the level of suspicion that has pervaded understanding of media has really been astonishing. And that's, I think, because of a change in media technology. We have a huge explosion in the number of media outlets. It's possible now to make a living orienting yourself toward a niche of the audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Forty years ago, if you, you basically you were either NBC, ABC, uh, or CBS or public radio, and uh, your audience was the entire country. And if you decided that you were going to put on Rachel Maddow or Rush Limbaugh, you were shooting yourself in the foot because a good punch of the audience would say, this is not interesting, I'm going to one of the other networks. Now, when you have any number of choices from loony left-wing to loony right-wing, and people have segmented themselves into audiences for particular media, it is possible to say, all the rest of those media out there are all nuts, and just my particular niche uh, has the truth. Very mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And it's certainly a case where candidates are repeatedly believing and trying different messages that someone somewhere thinks will work. And it's amazing to see when that process works, when people think it will work, and when it just fails miserably. A good example is, of course, this week there's been a huge discussion about what – uh, the effect on the presidential race nationally. Well, this video, this video that uh, is out there of candidate Romney, and the president's got a video out there too. And so to see how those will have effects, I'm sure they've done polling, research groups, all sorts of things like that. But voters are very fickle about what parts of that they'll buy into and what parts they won't. And so ultimately we find out, but it's, it's pretty fascinating to watch the candidates change those messages with that. All right, we have a phone call. Let's go to Norm on the phone. Norm? I'm curious about uh, the role of the Koch brothers in this cycle of elections in Indiana. Great question. You won't find much information on it because <laughs> the Koch brothers are smart enough to know to put their money into groups that don't have to report the, the people from whom they get their money. This is uh, in, in 2004... The overwhelming majority of money that went into a campaign ended up getting reported at some point um, because it had to be reported. Uh, now, a majority of the money in campaigns is not going to be reported because it's going to go through so-called social welfare 501c4s, which are not required by the Internal Revenue Service to report their donors. Um, and so, just as you would, I suppose, if you were a billionaire, you'd put your money into places where you can keep it quiet. Mm -hmm. So explain who the Koch brothers are. Koch brothers are uh, folks who are uh, in the energy industry, have become billionaires through it, um, and um, are, I think, more libertarian than they are Republican. They are uh, very strongly anti-government, as lots of people in the energy industry are. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Norm, any follow? Yep. Okay. Thanks. Uh-huh. Thanks a lot. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348, WFIU.org slash in addition. We just have about three minutes to go. So let's talk about the state legislature for a minute. Um, this is a, you know, this is a little closer to home, but uh, there's a lot riding on what happens in the legislative races this year. Do you think we're going to have a, a really strong uh, – Trent, let's yeah. – Go from your standpoint. What do you think is going to happen? Well, we certainly we have new maps, maps that mm -hmm. people will be voting uh, for candidates on these maps this year. Uh, the maps were drawn by the current uh, Republican majority in the Indiana, Indiana House and Indiana Senate. And no one really knows what will happen with these maps. They did change the state pretty 
pretty dramatically. Uh, here in Monroe County, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, we went uh, from, I think, three state representative districts to five, five. five uh, total. And so it'll be interesting to see. But maps can be surprising, and uh, we just will find out. Mm-hmm. It's going to be confusing to the voters because, like Trent said, the new maps and everything. We have people calling us saying, well, so-and-so was on my ballot two years ago. Why isn't so-and-so there now? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's going to cause a big trouble. I mean, people, like I said, you know, they're being informed of who's in their districts now. And candidates are out there walking the precincts. But um, I just, I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, in Monroe County, as, as you said, that there are now five House districts that touch Monroe County. Peggy Welch, who was one of the, one of the two primary Monroe County representatives, along with Matt Pierce, now has a district that is, stretches up into a lot of Morgan County. So I think a lot of people think she's vulnerable mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. because of the way that district's drawn. So That does happen with individual legislators. Uh, more generally, what we find in the research is that redistricting doesn't tend to have as great an impact as a lot of people think that it will. The biggest impact is, of course, in the first election after redistricting. After that, people move. Um, we just see changes all the time in the population. And so uh, typically by the end of the decade, um, maps are not predicting at all what mm-hmm. they were at the beginning of the decade. Mm-hmm. So this will obviously affect the legislature in 2013, and that means that, of course, the majority in 2013 is going to do everything it can to pass its agenda just as quickly as it can so that it becomes harder to get it undone after that. Okay, we have about a minute to go, so my last sort of general question, I guess a specific question, a lot of people are talking about um, – how this this election really there are two clear choices. The Republicans are are very clear about you know wanting to have less government. Democrats are saying government is good in a lot of ways. Um, is this the most sort of clear election we've seen in quite some time on a on a national level? I I I've told people all year it seems like this is the year of the woman, mm-hmm. and I don't know how exactly that will play out. But I hear more about women's issues, women's um, uh, place in the ballot box than I ever have before. And so I think it really will come down to a lot of that. Uh, We also see a growing, dramatically growing Latino population. And that that effect long term and this year, you just can never tell. So this is my prediction is we'll, we'll see something along those lines. Okay. Um, we're about out of time, so oh, very quickly. There's just a defined line between the candidates this year, between the differences between them. Mm-hmm. It's uh, something we haven't seen before. All right. We are out of time. Margie, I'm mm. sorry. You're going to have to wait till next time when you're on. Perfectly right. okay. <laughs> thank, thank our guests, Trent Deckard, Veda Long, and Margie Hershey. Uh, for Mary Catherine Carmichael, Gretchen Frazee and Julie Ra, our producers and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.